This is the Tribal Malfunctions Podcast. I am your host, Chang Terhune. Tribal Malfunctions is a cyberpunk novel set in 22nd century Boston. It is written by me, Chang Terhune, and read by me, Chang Terhune. So please, won't you join me as we now enter the world of Tribal Malfunctions. And welcome to episode 8 of the Tribal Malfunctions podcast. Tribal Malfunctions, as you may or may not know, is a cyberpunk novel written by me, Chang Terhune, uh, read by me, and also hosted by me. Incidentally, I am Chang Terhune. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So we're up to chapter eight. If you have not uh, been listening along with us regularly, I strongly recommend that you uh, go back and listen and catch up because uh, we're pretty far in. I think there's going to be 20 episodes total if I can keep them down um, to that. Some of the chapters are longer than the others. Um, But uh, so far, it's so good. I think it's an exciting story. I hope you do too. Um, It's uh, been an interesting thing want to just uh, do a couple little you know notes housekeeping thingies um uh i'm learning as i'm going along with this and uh you know maybe in the interest of posterity someday maybe i'll just like re-record it all and uh, make it all flashy and nice but i'm not going to i'm going to be um uh kind of chill about it one of my heroes is uh, mark Marin, the comedian uh he's a hero because of uh, not only his awesome podcast which really has changed my life with its humor and um, insight and all that stuff, but also with um, just his life and uh, his, you know, his comedy and stuff. Uh, my wife uh, used to work with him back in the day in Boston, and uh, I met him once and, and saw one of his performances of his shows. Uh, what is it? Oh, the Jerusalem Syndrome. Really cool. But uh, the, the reason I say that is, you know, he keeps it kind of free and easy. He does it in his garage. I do this in my attic. Um, I got my dog here with me. Actually, he's out looking out the uh, front window at um, cars and birds and squirrels and stuff passing by. And uh, it's pretty low-key. Um, I'm learning how to get the sound better, the sound quality better. I just rooted around in the um, attic for a, um, a box of, of stuff. And lo and behold, I found my pop screen. So you're not going to hear as much of those um, uh, pops as you have been. And uh, I'm learning about my mic placement and stuff like that. As, as a musician, I haven't had to do much recording of um, vocals in a long time. Um, and uh, so it's been interesting kind of learning how to do that again. So, pardon me, I'm just going to do a little housekeeping move, the Ricola bag, Ricola bag, so I can move the coffee over there. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so it's, I don't record this in a fancy studio. Record this in my attic. It's a small 60-foot square room. Right now I got the windows open because even though it is uh, February 23rd, 2017, and I'm in uh, Maine, um, Portland, Maine, southern portion of the state, it is 52 degrees out, and um, you'll hear crows and birds and animals rejoicing that it's so warm, but, you know, that's still a little freaky. Um, you know, it being Chinese hoax weather and all. So anyway, it's uh, you know, it's a uh, it's a DIY low budge production, but I really dig it, and I'm uh, trying to make it as cool as possible for you and nice as possible for you. Um, that would be you know just me using my own music and trying to do the recording and learn the voices and stuff like that and bring some uh, some life into this awesome podcast. 
I'm um, sorry, awesome story. And yeah, I'm biased. It's mine, but I really dig it. So um, I think that's pretty much it. Oh, you know, as always, uh, it's um, it's got cussing in it because in the future people still swear they haven't invented uh, something to replace it. And um, all right, I think I've uh, worn myself out. So let's get into chapter eight. As always, I'll give you a few seconds here to uh, catch up. Thank you very much. Uh, that rooster crow is courtesy of uh, Vindaloo the rooster out of Australia. And uh, I think i got to get that clock fixed. It sounds a little whack. All right, but let's go on. Chapter 8. Let's get it done. Travel malfunctions. Hit it. Travel log 8. The People's Choice. Boston, Massachusetts like many cities in the United States and the world at large, has employed a tolerant approach to what were once taboo and felonious pursuits. Since doing so, it has developed a free and abundant drug culture. Boston's unique approach is the Combat Free Zone, or BCFZ, or CFZ in common parlance, which makes most drugs accessible through licensed dispensaries overseen by city and state government agencies working with treatment centers for those whose appetites move beyond recreational use to addictive behaviors. Yet despite an atmosphere of tolerance, where drug use is not shunned or persecuted, unlike only a century before, there is still a specter of illegal drug use and the dangers of developing a harrowing addiction to those drugs. Disturbing reports of the growing use of designer drugs with street names such as Slim Jim, Lint, Rhino, and Ouch, each with their own dangerous effects, have some wondering if Boston's tolerance policy is being tested in the hardest way imaginable. You see and hear about it on the edges of the CFZ, says Boston Police Sergeant Blaine Hogan. Catch a glimpse of someone looking a little rough or hearing them talk about going to the zoo. One look at them, and you know they aren't going to Franklin Park or up to Stoneham. They're into something dangerously bad, and it's leaking beyond the perimeter of the CFZ. Readers could be forgiven for thinking Sergeant Hogan is referring to a trade in veterinary drugs and the popularity of ketamine in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. What she's actually referring to is common street line for the increasingly popular and dangerous drug known as Rhino. Remagen Pharmaceuticals developed Rhino, a degraded form of opiates in the morphine family of drugs, in the late 2050s with a clinical name of panthexidine. It was seen as a speedy and cheap alternative to pain medications used in the Pan-African Wars, the Scandinavian unrest, and the South American conflicts during that decade. However, panthexidine was soon found to have side effects that Remagen hid from the FDA and other drug regulation agencies across the world until an internal document was leaked to the press. Despite Remagen shutting down after a massive list of cover-ups and violations was discovered, panthexidine found its way onto the streets via clandestine labs that supplied dealers serving users ever eager for the next cheap high. It is the street that gave Rhino its odd nickname. 
Rhino can be smoked, inhaled, swallowed, or injected like many opiates. Users develop odd skin formations, growths, and a hardening of the epidermis, while muscles in areas of frequent continued injection eventually become paralyzed after a rictus sets in, often leaving the face contorted in strange expressions. This grimace mirrors the inner pain the user inevitably experiences. Late-stage users develop darkened patches of skin, which eventually roughen and harden into leathery patches like armor. Users succumb to asphyxiation, decreased blood flow, and ultimately death, as hardening fascia and interior muscles cease functioning. Rhino users tend to have short lives, dying within one to two years of their first exposure to the drug which carries an addiction rate 50 times swifter than heroin or cocaine. Some doctors report a few rare cases of rhino users who survived for up to three or four years. Early stage rhino users are characterized by patterned skin discoloration and facial tics from muscles locking into the rictus formations, as well as unsightly growths around the head and neck thus giving the drug its lesser-known nickname of Elephant Man or Stone Cold John Merrick. Mid-stage users become hunched over with larger formations and a pervasive sneer or leering expression and persistent drooling due to an inability to close one's mouth as well as a lurching, uneven gait from atrophy and hardening of the leg muscles. As if there could be a drug worse than this, with its high addiction and mortality rate, there is one even more terrifying, which is the drug known simply as Ouch. We barely even know what this stuff is, says Dr. Lucille Radley of Boston University's Bio-Narcotics Lab. As much as it's a killer, it's also perhaps the best drug ever made in terms of lethal efficiency. It's just astonishingly effective. That is, if you're looking for something so soluble and untraceable, of course. Ouch gets its name from the last word users are heard uttering before the drug kills them. Ouch users tend to live for only weeks or a few months at most. Many report having seen friends use it, mutter a few words of euphoria, then horror before dying of a massive coronary or stroke. Due to the high fatality rate of the drug, Data about the effects gained from user interviews is rare. Most of the data is anecdotal and secondhand at that. Those around users tell of ingesting the drug, and if they survive, feeling as if the entire world had disappeared around them, replaced with an impenetrably peaceful, tranquil state. There are no known cases of three-time ouch users. The DEA lists Boston as having one of the lower rates of rhino users, but this number is growing, and with it, the dangers of a drug trade growing beyond the control of the CFC. This excerpt taken from a Boston Globe online article dated July 21st, 2116. Chapter 8, Big Blue Hammer. 
When auto hauler Yuki Core 4291 returned a week later with a cracked hydraulic plow line, Aris broke into its cargo space. Even though the yard was empty, he looked around repeatedly before closing the propulsion access panel up. Then he made for the hauler's rear. Aris understood that what he was about to do was enough to get his license pulled and his garage shut down for good, at the very least. But he also knew armed men when he saw them, and the hauler's last appearance brought a black town car with tinted windows which lurked around the corner overnight. If caught, Aris figured the fine for unauthorized entry into the hauler's cargo space could be worth it. So he climbed up a recessed ladder on the hauler's back. At the top, he slung his arm through a rung and flipped open a small hatch, revealing a keypad and screen. Inside, a plastic seal branded with numbers was strung through a metal switch. Normally, live chips broadcasting shortwave RFID alarms were used to prevent tampering. A plastic tag like this was both archaic and useless, allowing it to pass only a cursory inspection at best. Aris spat out some grit, then grasped it between his thumb and forefinger. Despite the airtight alibi he'd devised, he still felt a twinge of cold in his gut as he ripped away the tag, then threw down the switch. White block letters on a red square read, Emergency open, yes or no. Aris pressed yes. As the heavy doors popped open, hissed and unlocked from the inside, Aris listened, then frowned. A full hauler would mean the doors opened with a muffled sound. But the echo from inside Yukikor 4291 meant the hauler was empty. The sealed doors of Yukikor 4291 sounded like someone throwing wrenches into a tin bucket. He ducked under as the rear door pushed away slightly and swung back inside its slot. He climbed all the way up the ladder to stand inside the hauler's cargo space. Empty, its floor littered with scraps of plastic and even wood fragments from older pallets. But other than that, what the fuck, Aris said aloud. To be certain, he took a walk around inside the hauler and flashed the mini sun torch around. Nothing. The walls looked fine, bulkhead untouched. Nothing out of sorts. Not even a dead rat. Except for another glyph scrawled just inside the door. A rectangle with a single dot in the center a larger symbol, and closed it like a rectangle missing the bottom side with a small stem at the top. Aris puzzled over its meaning for a moment, then gave up. Swearing repeatedly to himself, he closed up Yukikor 4291 and made a mental reminder to note why a mechanic would need to go inside its space. Yukikor 4291 returned three weeks later when Aris met two surprises sprung upon him. This time, the damage to Yukikor 4291 was a slipped wheel mount, usually caused by one of two things, poor maintenance or poorly secured and shifting cargo. Yukikor 4291 was carrying a full load. Even Aris' naked eye could see it sat heavy in its suspension. When it rolled in, Aris checked the roster and swore. What? said Manea from her desk. All the damn bays are full and we got a hauler rolling up. Aris stabbed the intercom button. Anyone finishing up soon? The intercom remained silent for a long, cold minute until Aris finally swore 
released the button and stood. Guess I'll go deal with it myself then. That's what Papa would have done, Menea said. Ara stuck his tongue out at her, and she winked back. He walked the length of the garage to the back doors where he opened the smaller door, then stepped out. When he read the numbers on the hauler's front tags, he ran back to the office to grab a coat. Once back outside, he snapped a lead line to the hauler's front cleat and dragged it back to a slot in the rear yard. The hauler, despite riding heavy on its hovering suspension, dragged behind him like a pregnant cow just awoken. Once he secured it in the slot, Aris climbed the hauler's rear where he found another cheap plastic tag hanging from the lock just as before. After some hesitation, Aris tore the cheap plastic tag off. Yukikor4291's manifest claimed it was carrying paper hanging lamps bound for a New York chain store. It's a lot of lamps, he said aloud, thinking of the suspension's heavy sag. As the doors began to unlock, Aris listened to a series of dull thuds, as if the hauler were about to give birth to permasteel girders. When the doors slid up into their slots, Aris found the interior packed floor to ceiling with heavy-duty green cases marked with Asian characters. A handheld reader could tell him exactly what these contained, but a garage owner had no reason to possess one. Those readers were specifically held only by shipping and receiving at either end of the hauler's journey or by customs officials. In addition, anything they read was immediately reported to the hauler's logs, as well as the owner's records, and to the DOT and NTSB servers. The harsh, blocky characters and bright yellow hue told Aris they could only contain one thing. He stepped into the hauler, getting out of the bitter, cold wind. As he drew an old handheld phone from his pocket, he glanced back at an old brick building behind the garage, glad that the old man bought it years before, then bricked up all the windows facing the yard. The last thing he needed was a visit from Officer Kassal, or a few dozen Metro Boston police vehicles descending on the yard. Yeah, boss, Wendell said when he picked up. In the yard. Now. You need a smoke that bad? Said Wendell. No. Oh, grab some of those old plastic inspection tags from the storeroom. All right, Wendell said. Oh, and bring smokes too. Yeah, definitely. Aris hung up, jamming his hands in his coat pockets. He laughed, remembering that for all the time he'd known Wendell, both of them had been deep members of rival gangs without either knowing, and if they'd met outside of work back in the day, they might have killed one another. Now, Aris trusted Wendell as much as Menea. Funny how time changes things, he thought. Wendell arrived after Aris unearthed a tarp from a nearby storage shed and rigged it to cover the hauler's back end. He sat at its edge, watching Wendell trudge up the snow-covered path to stop at the bottom of the hauler before looking up. A little cold to be chilling, ain't it? He said and laughed at his pun. What's up? Should have known you were K or BK from those shitty sneakers you always wear. Wendell looked down at the worn blue canvas sneakers and kicked snow from the tip of one. Don't fuck with my chucks, he replied. You just call me out to give me shit about my shoes, man? Aris jerked his head to the side, then gestured at the cigarette pack, peeking out of Wendell's breast pocket. Wendell sighed and threw the pack at Aris, who caught it with one hand. Wendell climbed the ladder and disappeared under the tarp. 
Aris lit his cigarette, inhaled, then blew out a stream of smoke and cold, breathy vapor. Holy shit, he heard Wendell say from inside. Yep, Aris replied, as he took in the smoke's harsh burn. Wendell appeared, then pulled the tarp down so fast, cracked like thunder. You realize we could get arrested for this, said Wendell? Yeah, said Aris. But don't you think that Yuki Kor could... Oh, oh, hell no, said Wendell, sitting next to him. He grabbed the cigarettes from Aris, knocking one into his palm. A Lucy fell to the ground, and Wendell swore before shoving the pack in his pocket. Aris realized it was a long time since he'd ever seen Wendell anything but unflappably cool. His anger, anxiety, and swearing might almost be funny if it didn't bother Aris so much. Wendell lit the cigarette, parking it between clenched jaws before jamming his hands between his knees. He hunched up against the cold. Man, they send goons around every time this thing shows up. What do you think they'll do if you report it to the fucking cops? Easy, said Aris, holding up a hand. No one's calling the cops. I just... Boy, I got too much to lose for this kind of shit, said Wendell. I'm married. I got fucking kids. Dovid is in the honors program at BBNN, Harvard, MIT, and Stanford, all knocking at the door, and he's fucking 14. Edwige is going to Deerfield next year. What's that, said Aris. Some kind of dance thing, or... A private school, said Wendell. A very, very good private school. Private school, said Aris, grunting. How much am I fucking paying you? Enough, said Wendell, but not enough to go to jail. Menachem would never forgive me. Aris suppressed a laugh. Wendell's husband was an Israeli physicist at MIT. Aris had never once seen him smile and couldn't imagine him as anything but unforgiving. The fuck did you open this for, man? Wendell asked. Aris wondered if he was about to cry. To see what was inside, he said. Because, because you've suddenly gone crazy? Wendell spat into the snowy ground below. How many thousands of haulers come through here every year, carrying how many billions of dollars of cargo that you don't open? All of them, replied Aris. Every single one, in fact. But all of a sudden, you gotta fuck that up with one shitty hauler? It's more than that, said Aris. You know it. I told you, Wendell. Something weird's going on. This is crazy, said Wendell. It's weird, all right, but it's something much bigger than your little yellow Filipino ass can handle. First off, I'm the owner of this place, so I think I know what's at stake here better than anyone, said Aris. So fucking act like it, boss. Secondly, said Aris, ignoring Wendell's anger. Secondly, this is more than just a crappy hauler. And you and I know from past history, we can't turn something like this over to the cops without getting ourselves thrown in jail or getting killed by those goons that keep coming around. Which is why you shouldn't have opened this thing up in the first place. Wendell hissed. Aren't you curious about what they're doing? said Aris. He couldn't hide his excitement. Why put hanging lamps on a manifest when you're running military crates? And why army shit from Asia or someplace? And why run it through the wormway when it's illegal as fuck? Korea, Wendell mumbled, mashing his cigarette out on the bumper. Huh? Korea, Wendell repeated. That's Korean on the boxes. How do you know that, asked Aris. You speak Korean? You a soul brother? Wendell scowled, then shook his head. Menachem, 
My Israeli man loves this kimchi made from gasoline, cabbage, and cardboard, like real Koreans do. Gets it from a place in Central Square, been around a hundred years or so. Those letters look like the ones on the sign and the kimchi jar. Think you can take a picture of these, then ask him? Oh, sure, Wendell replied, roaring. Hey, Menachem, sweetheart, can you take a quick look at these cases? Yeah, just just tell me if they're full of kimchi or surface-to-air missiles. No, I mean, maybe the owners of the grocery store are... You smoking something else besides my cigarettes? Wendell glared at Aris. No, man, I'm just wondering why the hell this is happening all of a sudden. Aren't you a little curious? Kinda? Wendell went silent for almost a minute. Mm, he finally said. Kinda. So? said Aris. Wendell kept his gaze on the yard. For a moment, he looked sidelong at Aris then returned his eyes to the brick wall. I might know some people from back in the day, he said. Got a few frères on the inside still. All right, said Aris. I'll talk to my people, too. Those fat kids in their boiler suits, Wendell muttered. Hey, said Aris, with mock offense. They only look fat. Heavy boys take pride in their bodies. Most of them are pretty skinny under those coats. Gotta look sharp for the angels. Wendell smirked. From what I heard, some of your angels ain't so pure and heavenly. Horace hid any damage the remark caused with a chuckle. A lot of them came over to get some demons and devil put in them, courtesy of KRBK boys, know what I'm saying? Oh, really? said Horace. Really, said Wendell, drawing the word out with a smile on his face. Horace's phone rang. He tapped it on. Yeah, he said. Aristotle Aguilar, said his wife. Where the hell are you? Babe, it's overflowing in there, so I'm putting that hauler... Liar. You're out back smoking with Wendell. Tell him I'll kill him later. Wendell laughed, knowing the discussion taking place without even fully hearing it. What's up, Manea? There's a couple of guys here about some kind of special delivery. Aris looked at Wendell, who saw the concern in his glance. Arm the gate and welcome Matt, said Aris. But they just... Do it, he shouted. Don't say anything till I get there. Aris hung up. He and Wendell tore the tarp from the hauler, then closed the doors, after making sure they didn't leave anything inside. Wendell found a tag matching the one from the hauler in the pouch he'd brought. He snapped it shut and stamped it with a holy roller seal. Both men jumped from the hauler, then ran inside. They got to the office, panting, to find Manea standing at the security monitor. She turned to look at them, shook her head, then muttered something in Armenian, before she turned back to the monitors and pointed. "'I don't think they're here to steal shit,' Or fuck anything up, she said. Aris came up behind her and leaned in to see two men standing outside the door, bundled up in uniforms while pacing the ice-veined asphalt. Neither were particularly big, nor did they wear designer shades. Behind them, a truck and smaller passenger van were parked, both bearing the blue and green dust-to-dust fabricator's logo. After a second, Aris looked back at Wendell. They seem okay to you? he asked. Safe as kittens, Wendell replied, except they seem kind of pissed. Manea rolled her head, then swore. So you guys gonna let them in, or... Aris cut her off with a wave of his hand and made for the front door, Wendell behind him. As Aris stood at the door, Wendell placed a hand on the shelf, touching the hidden shotgun. After a glance back at him, Aris slid open the security screen. Can I help you? He asked the back of the driver's head. The man turned to reveal an annoyed, middle-aged face bearing a few peculiar scars. You Aristotle Agalaw? He asked. Yeah, Aris replied. Who the fuck's asking? 
driver regarded him blankly for a moment, then pointed at the truck. Got a delivery from Atlas Parts, courtesy of Mr. Mijos. The driver held a hollow board displaying a delivery notice. Horus read it and sighed. Yeah, that's me. Uh, want me to leave it on the sidewalk or what? It's only like 55 tons, said the driver. 60 with the full slurry tanks. Hang on, said Horus. He slid the door shut, then turned to Wendell. What's up, said Wendell. 3D industrial faker I won a couple weeks back, said Horus. Wendell broke out in braying laughter. Then Horus joined him. He finally collected himself enough to open the door where the driver stood glaring. Uh, sorry about that thing I said before, said Horus. Not laughing at you. There was a mix-up and I, uh... Hey, Wendell, open the fucking big gate already, will you? Horus and Wendell oversaw the massive printer's installation in a disused bay off the central garage, which had become a storage area and informal break room over the years. After a couple mechanics cleaned it out, the delivery crew unloaded and set up the printer within a few hours. Aris knew he had Manea to thank for making sure he could fit the monster in there. It was nearly as big as a hauler, but needed almost twice as much power as one. It could build a car, and all the constituent parts were one whole frame. When they were finishing up, Aris and Wendell stepped closer to peer through the glass of the various arms, jets, and racks within. Ever seen one of these at work? said Wendell. Aris nodded. A small one. Used to see it fake toys and stuff at the arcade in Dorchester. Well, you're in for a treat, said Wendell. It's like watching Papa Legba breathe life into a hunga. What? said Aris. Wendell laughed as a smiling technician approached Aris. All set, sir, he said, handing Aris a towel. The dust-to-dust -dust holographic logo hovered over it. Want to take it for a spin? Aris nodded, and the technician explained how to access it, set it to run periodic self-maintenance and cleaning. When he was done, he showed Aris the design and build menu. After poking around, Aris looked at the technician. So what? The technician tapped at the tablet's surface, and the machine hummed into action. Aris and a small crowd gathered to watch as it created a dozen identical gray rings from extrusion jets and superheating lasers. When finished, the rings slid out from a small recess in the printer's lower side. The technician gathered them up and handed them over to Aris like they were jewels or golden eggs recently laid by some rare, mythical bird. There, you now have in your hand a perfect set of replacement trucks for any standard auto hauler, said the technician. Aris examined them closely, still warm in his hands. The lines were clean. There were no nicks or lingering threads. He handed one to Wendell, then took the tablet back from the technician. After poking around through the stored designs tab, he looked up. There's no plans here, Aris said. How am I supposed to build anything? You order them direct from the website, said the technician. Set up an account, then order the plans. They're encrypted and delivered straight to the printer. Valid for six hours. What's that mean, said Aris. Valid. Yes, sir, said the technician. Ordering a design plan means engaging in a temporary license to print according to dust-to-dust -dust specs. All plans are valid for six hours upon ordering. Twelve if you pay extra for big bulk orders. Permanent licenses can be bought for a one-time fee of... Nice scam, said Wendell. Aris nodded. The technician said nothing, his smile immobile. Building supplies, said Aris. What do I use to feed the thing? Ah, said the technician. He pointed to the wall where the techs had drilled half-meter-wide holes and ran pipes through, connecting to the printer's rear. 
Just on the other side of that wall there, you've got extra large tanks full of all-purpose dust-to-dust industrial faker slurry. Carbon fiber and spider silk tempered in a stable lattice matrix. All parts come with a five-year guarantee. Five years, said Aris. That it? Yes, sir, said the technician. Standard warranty for industrial equipment. You understand the wear and tear these parts go through, of course. And when the printer's low, it automatically notifies us and schedules a delivery within 24 hours. Nice, said Aris. And for an extra charge, I can install an industrial composting recycler unit. Help save on the slurry, then you could get rid of some of the junk you got out there. Junk? said Wendell. That's not junk. That's the Holy Roller Museum of American Commercial Delivery and Transportation. Mr. Aguilar's got stuff out there that's almost 200 years old. The technician laughed, looking between Aris and Wendell before closing it off with a smile. Yeah, go ahead and put one of those in, Aris said. He dropped the tablet into a slot on the faker's front panel. Then a hollow keyboard lit up. Aris poked it once, then turned to leave. Thanks for that. You're welcome, sir, said the technician. I hope you enjoy your new... Yep, it will do, said Aris, walking away. Wendell laughed and returned to his bay. Aris returned to the office where Minea was on the phone, speaking Armenian. At his desk, Aris called up the Dust to Dust website, created an account, then began searching for parts. He soon realized the savings were minimal, as parts subscriptions were only slightly less expensive than what he already paid to Yorick Mehos. And yet most of the plans were from authorized manufacturers, while the cheaper ones were sourced from OEMs. What a racket, Morris said. Minea hung up the phone. How's your mother? Was my Aunt Tuva, she replied. She's good. We're planning a luncheon for my mother's birthday. You want to come? Morris groaned. And listen to him bitch about me in Armenian, he said. No thanks. I'd rather file invoices. Careful what you wish for, boy, she said. Now take me to lunch. I promise the only things I'll say in Armenian will be dirty. I'd prefer if you said them in English, said Aris, grabbing his coat. Aris returned to his desk after lunch to review the day's work. The morning jam of hauler repairs was letting up as they finally got a handle on the backlog. He looked down the garage's length to watch as two mechanics led haulers in from the yard. One was Yukikor 4291. Osvaldo, take 4291 to Wendell in Bay 1, he shouted into the intercom. Down in his bay, Wendell popped his head out and frowned. Aris nodded. Wendell slapped the intercom button. Boss... I'm ass-deep in this hauler's heavy armor ray, Wendell shouted. I got the thing disassembled and parts everywhere. Then pull your thumb out of your ass, put it back together, and switch with Oswaldo so you can get this one done, please. Wendell rolled his eyes, then climbed out to help the diminutive Oswaldo swing the hauler into place. Aris waited an hour before he made an excuse to head to Bay 1, where he found Wendell crammed up inside the hauler's right magnetic array. Well, said Oz. Well, what? I still think you're crazy, Wendell said. Diagnostics said this thing's got some legit problems. The CPU is messed up bad. This hauler limped in here from somewhere north of Portland. It's as if... As if what? As if at some point on its journey, it's getting sidetracked, then someone's doing a shitty job of fixing it. Or maybe it's getting sabotaged, said Oz. Uvo. 
he squeezed into the tight space under the hauler and began to work at the CPU box. What are you doing? said Wendell. What do you think I'm doing? said Aris. I'm baking a fucking cake. This fucking guy, Wendell muttered. After a few seconds, he said, So what's it look like? Aris peered up at the rectangular plate, holding a slotted tablet up to it. On the screen, these little scratches and scrapes might look deliberate, but with all the wear haulers get from either repairs or regular use, it's hard to tell. Aris clipped the gantry light to the grounding frame, then opened the plate with a multi-tool. Another glyph was scrawled to the side, different from the others. Jagged lines on the right side of a rectangle. Yeah, someone's definitely been at the CPU again, said Aris. Besides you? asked Wendell. Very funny. Well, I told you so. Aris groaned. He heard Wendell shifting to help get the plate out of the way. Wendell slid up next to him as the two stared at a slashed golden sheet and torn NTSB seals. Aris sucked air in fast through his teeth, then pulled out another tool. Boss, you're not gonna... Shh, you big fucking baby, he hissed. Aris plugged a cable into a socket on the exposed board, then connected it to the tablet. Just want to copy the system file to check the... Aris mistook the sudden flash for an electrical short. He was about to tell Wendell to grab a fire extinguisher, as a square of snowy static flickered for a few seconds before the pudgy, smiling face of a golden child appeared. Hi, it said. I'm Hero. Aris stared at the same glowing face he'd seen in the Hauler's Bay a few weeks before. Hi, he finally said back. What's your name? said Hero. I'm, uh, I'm Aris, he said, and this is Wendell. Hi, said Wendell. Hi, Aris. Hi, Wendell. I'm Hero. What are you guys doing? Aris swallowed, unsure what to say. Uh, we're fixing you up, Hero. Seems you got some broken parts. Oh, okay. Are you doctors? Huge face loomed over him. Aris found the hologram's unblinking eyes scanning the space and its permanent smile disconcerting. Yes. Yes, we are. Where am I? Hero said. You're in a gar... You're in a hospital, of course, said Wendell. You really needed fixing up. Okay. What city is this? Aris was stumped for an answer. Where do you think you are, said Wendell. Hero blinked several times. Boston? It said. Somerville. Is that near Boston? Yes, it is, said Wendell. Do you know how you got here? You bet I do, said Hero. I get to drive the hall, but Yugi puts me to sleep to dream when I go driving. I don't usually wake up until I'm back home with her. Oh, okay, said Aris. Who's Yugi? Yugi's my friend, said Hero. Actually, she's my best friend. She says if I'm a good boy, we're going to the moon someday. I'm going to fly us all the way there. Oh, that sounds like fun, Hero, said Wendell. Well, if we want to make you better, we need to check some things out, okay? Okay, said Hero. Can I help you? I like being helpful. Sure you can, said Oz. Can you show me your full itinerary and all the driver data? Sure, said Hero. He blinked a few times, then Oz's tablet pinged as it received a packet of data. Thanks, Hero. He glanced at Wendell for a moment. I think we're all set here. Can you do me a favor, Hero? Sure. What? Well, it's kind of a secret, said Aris. Oh, I like secrets, said Hero. I sure do. What's the secret? Well, I just need to make sure you won't tell anyone that we talked, okay? Okay, said Hero. The 
face changed slightly. But why? Well, said Aris, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a surprise, said Wendell. Hero brightened again. Yes, and we don't want anyone to know until it's ready. Oh, okay, said Hero. His face darkened slightly. Is it a good surprise or a bad one? Oh, it's a good one, said Aris. Definitely good. He thought for a second, then asked, Has anyone else talked to you? Any other doctors or people besides us and your best friend Yuki? Nope, Hero replied. Nobody but you and Yuki. Okay, good, said Aris. So I know you can keep this secret for a little bit, okay? Okay, I bet I can keep one for a really long time. Longer than anyone. I bet you can, Hero, said Wendell. We have to go now, okay, Hero, said Aris. Okay, bye-bye. Snowy static flickered once, then there was only the gantry light casting shadows in the darkness of the cramped space. Aris realized he hadn't breathed in a few seconds, then gasped. Whoa, said Wendell. Yeah, said Aris. Is it off, said Wendell? Aris showed him the handheld screen. Yeah, zero activity. But it gave me a shit ton of data. This is too weird, said Wendell. I don't get it. Me neither, said Aris. I'll close this up and you finish that array. I want to get this thing out of here. ASAP. Got it, said Wendell. He slid away as Aris closed up the CPU box. That night, Aris stayed late at the garage again, telling Manea he wanted to get to know the faker's workings. You mean play around with it? Boys and their toys, she said, rolling her eyes. Well, as always, I'll leave you a plate. He kissed her goodbye, then watched her leave. After closing the garage for the night, he headed for the subway. A half hour later, he was sitting in the all base, beer in hand, across from Tiny Town. Tiny Town lay in his bed, freed of his fat suit. In the dim light, Ara saw a glint of metal where the medical exosuit held his friend together. So, my man, Tiny Town said, voice slurring. What's up? Not much, said Aris. Boring civilian life. Ha <laughs> ha, said Tiny Town. If you're so bored, we can speed up your reinitiation process, get you back to your down and heavy self. How about it? Reinitiation, said Aris. Never heard of that. Tiny Town shrugged and groaned. Out is out, but shit, times are tough. Need all the experienced hands I can get. Yeah? How you doing? asked Aris. Going, but barely, man, he said. On account of my interest to the police, I gotta get my medical needs attended to on the down low, know what I'm saying? Goddamn quack doctor fucked up my exosuit today. Had to get me a little outpatient surgery. Drug me up so much I'm still high six hours later. He struggled to sit up, so Aris helped Tiny Town get himself upright on some pillows. Shit's been bad enough with me having to keep this place together and recover. Those new block battles, man, said Aris. Some bold shit going down. He'd read about it on his tablet as he rode out to the all base. Fifteen years after the Big Battelle, and only five after the bans on gangs, gear, and congregating were lifted, there was an uptick in gang activity. Boston was rumbling once again with numerous little turf wars, and no one was unhappier about it than the police. Yeah, said his friend. 
Plenty of scrapes, but we ain't lost the war. Not yet, anyway. Speaking of wars, said Aris. He told Tiny Town about the military crates in the hauler, and the conversation with Hero. Tiny Town frowned at this. Too fucking weird if you ask me, said Tiny Town, then drifted into a prolonged silence. He finally came back and opened his eyes. It's a lot of weapons for just a turf thing, yeah? For sure, said Aris, nodding. Tiny Town jutted his chin at the refrigerator. Aris got them each another beer. Aris cracked his open and took a swig. The sting of alcohol hit him as did the smoky, hoppy flavor. Heavy brew, an all-base favorite. Every club had their own special variation, but the basis was a high-alcohol content beer. Aris was glad he could take the tea home, as it would be in no condition to drive within a few minutes. How many of those crates you say were in there? asked Tiny Town. Not sure, said Aris, taking a swig. Mm, might be fifty, maybe a hundred. You get a picture of them crates? Couldn't read what they had in them, but yeah, said Aris. He pulled the tablet from his pocket, unrolling it from sleep mode. Yo, Critical! Tiny Town shouted. A boy of sixteen lumbered in. Yo, Future, let him see that picture? Aris handed the tablet to the boy, who grasped it with both hands, peering at it intently. The image was reflected in the boy's mocha ER7 shades. Aris saw his lips move as he read. What those boxes say, KK? A lot of military shit, serial numbers, stuff like that, Critical said. But, oh, hang on. He looked into space for a few seconds, then nodded. Yeah. Image search says it's Soko Doper weaponry. Say what? asked Aris. South Korean Democratic People's Republic, said Critical. My folks escaped when I was fall. Can't tell the gauge, but those are shock assault rifles. You load them with uh, armor-piercing rounds. Thanks, KK, said Tiny Town. You most righteous and heavy. Honored, received. Thanks, all Papa. The boy nodded at Aris and left. Why, Soko, I wonder, said Tiny Town. Where you say the hollow was headed? Free Canada, I think, said Aris. In from the west coast. Was over in Asia somewhere before then. Whereabouts, said Tiny Town. Korea? Aris shook his head. Couldn't have been South Korea because of the embargo. UN blocked their access to the Pacific Tunnel System after the DMZ battles in 53. Shit. You a historian now? Said Tiny Town, admitting a gurgling laugh. <laughs> Check out college boy here. Aris laughed, then shrugged. Hollers in my business, he said. Still don't get this one, though. Well, shit, let me paint it out for you, man, said Tiny Town, fortifying himself with a long pull from his bottle. You okay drinking with all those meds you're on? Aris asked. You okay with shutting the fuck up in my house? Tiny Town replied. Aris laughed. Look. Your weird-ass hauler gets loaded with weapons somewhere across the Pacific. If it ain't Soko, then it's someplace they can intercept and load it up. They send it back here on a return route? Looks kinda random. Like losing a tail? It kinda sorta, said Tiny Town. Hard to do that down in them tunnels, right? They all one-way and shit. Aris nodded. Where the haulers come in from? A bunch of places, or is there like one central entry point? San Francisco is the big West Coast hub, said Aris. Smaller one up north in SeaTac. Tiny Town nodded. Bet if you check the route, you find it didn't enter in San Francisco and just headed east. 
Probably weaved around a bit before coming this way, then go round. What for? said Argus. Think about it, man, said Tiny Town. If it went straight east to Free Canada, the RCMP and Canadian Army Intelligence would be on it like shit on toast. Yeah, I can see that, said Argus. But if they sent it up through the Eastern Corridor, looks less suspicious, said Tiny Town. With the border fights between the Ottawa Battalions, the Free Canada People's Army in Montreal, and no one's gonna let a pack of smokes by unless it's been run through 10 x-ray scans and a full cavity search. Still gotta get past customs, said Aris. U.S. Border Patrol ain't exactly lax. No, but... Tiny Town sunk into another long silence. It'd cover their tracks. Must have someone inside a border patrol or homeland security. So I ship guns up there, said Aris. Shit, all that history, but you ain't reading the news, said Tiny Town. Free Canada's at war with the Danish over Greenland, too. Those, uh, what do you call them, sanctions? Fucking them up bad. Probably running out of everything, not just food, water, and medicine. Right, I forgot about that, Artis said, nodding. He remembered Manea said something the other day about poor kids in Free Canada and Daniel's school was raising money for UNICEF. He was also getting a little drunk. So who's getting the weapons, and why? Don't know, said Tiny Town, downing the last of his beer. With a belch, he chucked the bottle at the fabricator's slurry bin. Don't care now much either. Got enough problems of my own. Well, yeah, said Aris. Tiny Town shook his head and groaned. Sent a crew out to boost some cabling from a construction site in Woburn, he said. It was specialized stuff, so I sent Skip Trace, my number one IT rat, in there to tell those yobos exactly what to boost. If I didn't, they'd come back with fucking pallets and just steal a big wheel of copper or something stupid, right? Sure, said Aris. His head was truly spinning from the beer now. Well, they got busted. Top soldiers and a couple of new recruits. Gone. Fucking took him in and scared the shit out of him before our lawyer could get there. Whole crew cut a plea deal. Sent to the mine farm down in Hull. Five-year contract and half pay. Then their slates get wiped clean. Assholes took it. Shit, said Aris. So now what? Gotta get him the fuck out is what, said Tiny Town. Otherwise, might as well join him. Look, I know this ain't much, but shit. What we got here is better than joining the great American workforce. You know what I'm saying? You see me in a nice suit getting on the tee every morning? Nah, not really, said Aris, laughing. So how you gonna do it? No idea, said Tiny Town. Gotta be soon, though. Motherfuckers in there too long get soft, comfy, and scared. Ever see someone leave that place when contracts are up? Nope, said Aris. They call it graduation. No shit. People come out of there looking like baby ducks. Take a look around, shit themselves. They sign up for another five or ten year contract. Do it over and over again till they fucking die. Shit. Sounds awful, said Aris. Yeah, it does. Tiny Town pointed at Aris with his new beer bottle, spilling a little bit on the floor. Yo, my boys say you got yourself a 3D printer faker today. That's right, said Aris. Won it for being a good customer. Thing's fucking huge. Yeah, said Tiny Town. Saw the pictures. Aris nodded. He knew Tiny Town would use nine knives and tie-tie 
to spy on him while he was using them to watch the garage in the neighborhood. Yeah, the thing's pretty cool. Print all my own parts and shit. Save me some money, but... But what? said Tiny Town. Aris briefly explained the printer's proprietary features and how Dust to Dust headquarters monitored it. Oh yeah, those are DRM to fucking back, said Tiny Town. You can't bring anything but their parts unless you pay a big fee go outside their network of designers. That's about it, said Aris. But I don't need anything besides hauler parts. As unless you know someone who can step around that shit, said Tiny Town. Aris snickered. Suppose an old friend needed some things printed up, said Tiny Town. Aris frowned. Such as? Like maybe... Tiny Town waved his hands in the air. Some weapons of our own, seeing as you can't make some accidentally fall off a certain haunted hauler. Aris laughed. Nah, I'm legit now, Tiny Town, said Aris. Besides, that thing's all locked up. How would I print you anything? Weapon design on a faker's been illegal since 2035. And you called yourself a heavy boy, said Tiny Town. Motherfucker, you know there are always certain ways around certain laws, right? That'll get you caught, yeah. Damn, said Tiny Town. Only Skip Trace wasn't dreaming down in Hall. Man, he'd take a shot at that thing and bust it wide open. Be able to print all sorts of shit and keep dust to dust from knowing. He rigged this one here for me. Tiny Town pointed to a small faker in the corner workshop. Don't print nothing much bigger than a pistol, but still. Yeah, well. Aris stood, wobbling, until he got his balance. Damn, that shit's strong. I'm out of practice. That's what you get for giving up the life, boy, said Tiny Town. That's what you gonna do about those guns. Nothing I can do, said Aris. They ain't mine. I get shut down if I report them. Tiny Town began laughing. What? said Aris. You, man, said Tiny Town. Up there trying to be all citizen in good standing. See right through your shit. What do you mean, said Aris. You fucking like it, said Tiny Town. This little taste of gang stuff brings you back, don't it? Makes you think of the good old days, am I right? Kinda, said Aris. He thought of Baby G at the convention. Lots of things I don't miss, though. Well, we're living proof you can survive a nasty battle and still be down and heavy, right? Aris looked at him. You're not saying I gave up, he said. Not saying I quit on my all base, I hope. Hell no, said Tiny Town. Ain't saying that at all. I told you I'd have run if I was in your shoes. I mean, I mean, place. Very funny, said Aris, looking down at his scuffed boots. He remembered the rig in his old bedroom, which could make almost any clothing look brand new. Oh, we're both still standing. Kinda, said Tiny Town, patting the med exosuit. The past is past, boy. Ain't gonna make you eat shit about it again. We're cool? We're cool, said Aris. I gotta head out. All right, said Tiny Town. Getting kinda sleepy myself. Aris left the all base, rode the tea a while, then stumbled home, head awash in alcohol, old memories, and new puzzles.
as he could through the back door. Minea was sitting at the table in her robe, staring into a steaming mug in front of her. She looked up and smiled at him. Hey, baby, he said. Her face was clouded. Well, what's up? You got a message, she said, and slid the voicemail to his tablet. He looked at it, then again at her. Whoa, said Aris, sitting down hard into his chair. Your sister? said Minea. It's been a while, huh? Yeah, said Aris. He leaned back in the chair. I haven't heard from her in ages. Almost twenty years. Well, she said you need to call her right away. She said why? Minea just shook her head. Just call her. She said it was urgent. Aris dialed the number. There was an odd series of clicks then. Aguilar. He hadn't heard her voice in so long, yet the three syllables flipped switches in his mind, turning on a dormant part of it. Hey, Anna Maria, he said. It's Aristotle. Aristotle, she replied, voice curling around his unfamiliar full name. She'd always called him R.S., or Tottle, if she wanted to upset him. Thanks for calling back so soon. Yeah, he said. Uh, a long time. So what's up? she said, and paused for too long. Our mother is dead. Chapter 8, Episode 8, with a bit of a sad note. A lot of things happening for Mr. Aristotle Aguilar. Uh, intrigue. Uh, infantile AIs. Or young toddler AIs, maybe. Um, and um, uh, sad news, ending it up. But I hope you're enjoying it. Uh, as always, I'm having fun uh, doing these for you. And uh, keep listening. Um, you know, drop a line, reblog, reshare, as uh, the great Laura Stone uh, says on her epic podcast, um, uh, every time you, uh, reblog or share a podcast, um, an angel gets its wings, and, uh, she also said a puppy gets a nosebleed, which I don't like, because, you know, puppies, um, puppies shouldn't get nosebleeds, um, maybe she meant a Republican gets a nosebleed, that I would really like, yes, okay, so, um, keep listening as always, and, uh, chapter 9, episode 9, next week of Tribal Malfunctions. Good day and namaste.
is wrong with this recording? It took forever. It took so long. It's like my Mac is all messed up and weird. I couldn't figure why. Hey, wait a second. The, the hard drive is... The seal is torn open. And, wait, there's this... My God, I didn't notice that. There's this weird glyph. It's a rectangle with little lines pointing out of it and a circle inside. What the... What the hell? And there were those guys in shades and heavy black coats hanging around the Walgreens down the street earlier. the security cameras and the electric doormat.